same, and no one who meets Christ today will ever be the same either, for he is timeless. In many ways, our world is radically different from that of the first century, but in other, more basic ways, it is still the same. That is why the story of Jesus Christ is always relevant. For one thing, across the centuries, the human heart has not changed. The insecurities and fears of the first century are ours. So also is the yearning for meaning and purpose in life, the burden of guilt, the fear of death, the longing for love and trusting relationships. Nor has God changed across the centuries. Just as he came down in the person of his son and touched the lives of people in the dusty villages of Palestine so long ago, so Christ can change our lives and walk with us wherever we are every day as we open our hearts to him and follow him by faith. Yes, the story of Christ's transforming love and power continues to be the greatest story ever told. Billy Graham, February 15, 1989 The Greatest Story Ever Told by Fulton Ursler Read by Edward Herman People in Nazareth said that Joseph was like his great ancestor, the favorite son of Jacob. It was true that the carpenter of Nazareth, with his small golden beard, so different from his black-haired neighbors, was a dreamy, quiet-spoken man, looking more like a scholar than a craftsman. The golden-bearded Joseph, with the prematurely bald head, was called a visionary, because he refrained from gambling with travelers of passing caravans. He avoided tavern women and found his pleasure in good talk with a few neighbors. Among Nazarenes, these were queer habits, for generally they were a rowdy lot. This town, lying hidden in the mountains, was near a post on a busy trade route between Europe and Asia, so there was often excitement in the neighborhood, a tide flowing back and forth of camels and baled merchandise, pungent fragrances and spicery and rainbow silks of the East, skilled manufacturers of the West, wines and oils, the barter and trade of Alexandria and Damascus. At night caravans often rested in the fields, and the rocky hillside gleamed with golden tongues of campfires. The townsfolk got their news from those travelers, and day and night lived in an atmosphere of the new, the strange, and the exciting. They were rough men, these merchants and camel drivers, and the people of the town were rough too, ready to take offense, ready to brawl, to gamble and haggle, ready for anything. For this night's negotiations, Joseph had made great preparations. Behind the curtain at the back of his shop, he scrubbed all the sweat from his stocky body. The muscles of Joseph were strong as those of any Nazarene bully. He could put his shoulder under a Roman axle and lift a broken chariot from the mire. Thoroughly he cleansed himself and trimmed his beard and washed the sawdust out of the stiff tangles of his curls. Carrying a gift of Damascus sweets, he set off through the crowded street of the coppersmith. Just at the edge of the town, about a mile from Joseph's workshop, on a shoulder of a hill stood the house of Mary. It was somewhat more substantial than the average dwelling, and much more charming to the eye than the shacks of sun-dried bricks in which lived so many of the valley people on the floor of Sharon and the great plain below. Mary's home was made of the mountain stones. It was covered with plaster, 
and the white half-ball dome at the top had a square terrace all around it, on which fruits and vegetables were drying tonight. The flooring of that dome-shaped roof was on a slant to pour the scant rain down into a rocky cistern in the rear. The parched land of Palestine hoarded every raindrop. The door opened into the one large chamber of the house. The house's mighty walls were of rough-dressed stones, four feet thick to keep out the heat, and smoked by old fires. At the rear was a high platform that was really the family home. It was raised on stone arches and reached by a steep stairway, the heart of this household where the family ate, slept, and lived. Near the front opening, the ground floor was cluttered with the family's livestock, sheep and goats, a rooster and his hens. When the family had company overnight, Mary had to sleep on this floor level, near the warm animals, and she always enjoyed the adventure. Joseph was greeted at the door by Joachim. Inside were Anna, Mary's mother, and a strange woman he had never seen before. This was Elizabeth, kinswoman of the family. Once, sometimes twice a year, they had a visit from cousin Elizabeth, daughter of Anna's much older sister. Between Mary and Elizabeth, there was a difference of more than forty years. It was like being cousin to your own grandmother. Most of these forty years, the older cousin had been married to a country priest in a village not far from Jerusalem. His name was Zachary, and the town they lived in was called Ain Karim. Cousin Zachary was even older than his wife. About the aging pair there was a settled feeling of taut dignity, as if they had dutifully made friends with sorrow. They were very poor, and the village of Ain Karim, where Zachary labored in the synagogue, was small and obscure. There he served the townspeople, married and circumcised them, advised and buried them, a busy and peaceful life. Elizabeth had arrived with news. Soon Zachary was to be pulled out of his obscurity. To any little village priest the honor might come. Now Zachary was called again, after years, as a priest of the line of Abia, if you please, to celebrate the sacrifice at the holy place in the temple of Jerusalem. You tell me this? Great news indeed! Anna closed her eyes and remembered the glory and the magnificence of the great temple. That good old Zachary should wear the white and yellow robes and the blue tassels before all the worshippers and send up smoke to the very nostrils of Jehovah. Oh, Elizabeth, aren't you happy? Yes, my loved one, I am very happy. Joachim entered and cleared his throat. <clears throat> this is Joseph, the husband announced awkwardly. He comes to tell you how much he loves our child. Anna sunk to the floor and crossed her legs and shook herself from side to side and made a sad, low, crooning sound, as if an adumbration of sorrow had fallen upon her. "'Morning!' exclaimed Joachim reproachfully. "'There should be no sadness in all this.' "'You are right. I know it. I know.' Anna lifted a tear-stained face. "'I trust your judgment, beloved. I do not mean to make sadness.' I am sure Joseph must be a fine young man because he has so touched Mary's heart that she is really foolish in her thoughts of him, beautiful, foolish thoughts of love and pretty dreams. I want Mary to have happiness, to know deep love and kindness and sweetness, as we have always known it, Joachim. I am sure you know best. Joachim spread out his arms, palms to the roof. Then why is she crying? he demanded of the universe. I don't know. 
I really don't know. We are an unusual family, Joachim. We have strange feelings at times. You have been dreaming? No, it's just a fear, like a pain in my heart that portends something and won't go away, as if our Mary will know too great a misery because of this. The feeling has been there ever since I saw her this afternoon come home from the well. They had seen each other there. I don't know what I fear, Joachim. All I know is that there is pain, this foreboding, something that makes me deathly afraid. She made a hopeless gesture and scrambled to her feet. There, I will have done with such feelings. Bring in the young man, she said in an altered voice. He is very determined, as you say, and he does have a handsome beard. One has to admire that. The worry in her heart was lessened when Anna met Joseph for the first time. Later she admitted to her husband that the carpenter made a good impression the moment he came through the door. Such devotion as Anna had for her child carries with it a kind of prescience. She divined something warming and good and trustworthy in the awkwardness of the workman. In his placating smile she sensed a guarantee of honor. As she led the visitor up to the household platform, it came to Anna that Joseph was a gentle but very strong man. There was a certain ceremoniousness in the beginning of the interview. The drinking of a traditional cup of hospitality passed from hand to hand, and an embarrassed discussion of weather, of crops, and of burdensome taxes. Then they came to a complete stop, and after a silence Joseph blushed and said bluntly, I love your daughter Mary. I saw her on the first day you moved into this town. I have seen her every day since, except that sad time when she was ill with a cold and you kept her in bed. You knew about that, gasped Anna, then turned her head suspiciously. She had heard what the others had not, the distant tinkling sound of young laughter. Where was that Mary? She had gone to the roof with Cousin Elizabeth. Wherever she was now, she was listening. Anna remembered that she, too, had listened when Joachim had made his formal call upon her father. Joseph told them how he was the son of Jacob Heli, who had died long ago, and who was the son of Matan, and the book of his generation carried his family back to Abraham. All this I have inspected in the rolls of the synagogue, Joachim told his wife. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David. Mary is also of the house of David, nodded Anna. Joseph further explained that the uncle who brought him up had been dead for three years. The suitor stood alone in the world, without aunt or uncle, brother or sister or cousin. I am lonely, and I want Mary to be my wife. I have come to espouse her, if it will be your pleasure to have it so. He finished, a little frightened of the high-sounding words. Anna and Joachim exchanged nods, and the mother walked with dignity to the door leading to the open roof. Mary, she called. And presently Mary, light blue mantle over her shoulders, came barefoot into the room and stood before Joseph. Elizabeth followed and put her arms around Anna. The father took the young man's hand and placed it in the hand of his daughter and gave them his blessing. The future bridegroom thanked the mother and father but kept looking at his promised one. So young and strong and dreamy was Mary that night. You are espoused, said Joachim. You are betrothed, said Anna. Peace be with you, said Joachim and Anna, and the Lord be with you, murmured Joseph and Mary. 
Tomorrow all Nazareth would have the glad information. Why, thought Joseph as he laid his other hand over hers, this is almost as official as being married. In this province of Galilee, and indeed in all Palestine, once a couple were engaged, only the most serious circumstances could justify man or woman in breaking off. And Joseph chuckled at the ridiculousness of the notion that he could ever be minded to break his engagement with Mary. Of course, Joseph was invited to go along with the family to attend Cousin Zachary's proud occasion in the temple. With the double delight of a country boy on his first long journey and a well-read man who knew the history of where he was and what he was seeing, Joseph beheld Jerusalem. The sight of the mustard-colored walls, the bastions and indented parapets, the battlements and towers roused in the carpenter a kind of tranquil ecstasy, the state he had sometimes known in prayer. Soon they passed through the gate and made their way down the noisy darkness of the roofed streets, stepping gingerly to avoid the filth of the paving stones and lifting their noses helplessly. The reek and feculence and foulness, the unutterable stink of the Jerusalem streets, were in their nostrils, even as they stared at the ivory and gold glories of Herod's palace on the western hill, his amphitheater for games, and his castle, Antonia, named for his great chum, Mark Antony. A broad area, this place of the temple, with its still unfinished colonnades. The eyes of Joseph bulged. Its great rectangle was at least four hundred yards the long way, and three hundred yards east and west a vast plain of worship and sanctuary and marketplace for ecclesiastical supplies. As they came nearer to it, Joseph began to see signs warning Gentiles to keep out of the inner courts on pain of death. Now they were entering the outer and lower court, first approach to the sanctuary where cousin Zachary was to appear in his hour of glory, chief performer of the sacrifice just before sundown. Already thousands of worshippers filled the rectangle within the five gates of this mighty edifice, with its courts and double galleries, its marble pillars fifty feet high, and its roof made of blood-red cedar from Lebanon. Mary's heart was filled with wonder. She had the odd feeling that she had been here before. Actually, as a very little girl, she had been brought here by her parents, but she had been too young to remember it. Without delay, Anna and Elizabeth and Mary proceeded to the court of the women, beyond which they might not go. Joseph and Joachim, mounting the farther steps, paused at the entrance to the inner court to take it all in. The rays of the evening sun poured down fiercely on their heads. The service was soon to begin. This present temple.